You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Christmas candles also show us the need for salvation, that we see all of this evil in the world, and then we light up these four candles, and then finally the fifth, the Christ candle, to show that we have a hope that we can offer them, and that is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ isn't just a religious figure who's out there and we're here 2,000 years later, but he is someone that can come into your heart. There's a supernatural event that can happen if you believe that God was the one who sent Jesus, his son, to be born in a manger and to live a perfect life for you and me and to die on the cross, to die a perfect death, taking away all of our sins and then rising again from the dead on the third day, showing that sin had no power over him. And so that if anyone would believe in that Jesus who was born and lived, died and rose again from the dead, that they can be saved and we can look forward to heaven because we will rise from the dead one day as well after death. And so that is the hope that we have in Christ. It is not just a hope that there's a great figure called Jesus that we can follow as a moral example, but it's a hope of regeneration, a hope of an inside out change, a hope that has changed the destinies of not just individuals, but of tribes, of cultures, and of nations. And so I invite you to that hope today and also this entire month. If you have not yet believed in Christ as your Lord and Savior, please make a faith commitment to Jesus and be transformed inside out. Let's pray. Father, as we continue through the story, we pray that you would guide us with your Holy Spirit as we talk about the trials of King David. Lord, we thank you that you had a king that was installed that was a man after your own heart. But although he was a man after your own heart, Lord, we know that he was not perfect. We know that he was not sinless and extremely holy like you are. And Father, help us to know why he went through these trials and what happened. And help us, Lord, to understand that sin has consequences. But also, your grace is large enough to still continue blessing, even though we have those consequences. God, a lot of us identify with David, identify with his failures, identify with his victories. But if there's one thing that remains true, through everything, you desire us to have that same heart that David has, a person that has the heart of God. And Lord, as you are living in each one of us as Christians, we pray, we pray that you would allow us with humility and with open arms to live through us so that we can be that light of Christ, just as these candles are being lit uh, in these weeks coming ahead. We thank you for this time, Lord. Father, we do continue to pray for healing from the events that have uh, come before us in this past month with the fires, as well as with the shootings. And Lord, all the other events that are going on in our lives, which may not be uh, the easiest to get through. Help us, Lord, to put our trust in you. Be that who undergirds our strength to, gu to guide us through each and every one of these obstacles. And I pray for your peace and for your healing upon those who were personally involved and uh, personally affected by the fires and by the shootings and other things that have been going on these past couple of weeks. Thank you for this time that we can go to your word and be assured that you are our stability. For your word rings true and is forever unto forever. And it reflects who you are, a God who is eternal and who will always be with us to love us, to care for us, and to guide us and to take us home into glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, well, we're going to start with a little video recapping the trials of the king and the story of David. Let's show that video.
All right. Now, if you still don't have a copy of the story, uh, there is three right up here that you can take. So you can go along with us as we go through the Bible. Uh, We're in part 12 now of the story. So uh, you can just start at part 12 or part 13, or you can start from the beginning. It's a really easy read. It takes all of the major parts of the Bible and condenses it and put it into one book, which you see right over there. So please join us in doing that. Now, I want to start by telling you another little story, and it's a little story of a country. Once there was a little boy who lived in the country. They had to use an outhouse for part of their bathroom facility. And the little boy absolutely hated the outhouse because it was hot in the summer, cold in the winter, and it stunk all the time. Those of us that have gone on missions trips know uh, what we're talking about. So the little boy decided that because the outhouse was on the bank by the creek, he would push the outhouse into the water. After a spring rain, when the creek was entirely full, the boy knew it was time to push the outhouse into the creek. He got a big stick, and he pushed And the outhouse toppled into the creek, and it floated away. Later that night, his dad told him that they were going to make a trip out to the woodshed. The little boy knew that meant a spanking. He asked his father why, and the father said, Because someone pushed the outhouse into the creek today, and I think it was you, wasn't it, son? The boy answered, Yes, it was, Dad. Then the little boy thought and said, You know, Dad, today... I read in school that when George Washington cut down the cherry tree, he didn't get in trouble because he told the truth. The father responded, well, yes, son, but George Washington's father wasn't in that cherry tree. (laughs) Now, most of us have never toppled an outhouse, but all of us can identify with this little boy in three ways. And this is why. These three ways. Number one, we have something inside us that wants to do wrong. There's an inclination inside us that wants to do bad and naughty things. The Bible calls it sin. And so, for example, in the story, it was the boy wanting to topple the outhouse. I mean, there's no really reason for toppling the outhouse. You don't, didn't need to topple the outhouse. But the temptation of, it stinks, I don't like it, took him over. And so he couldn't help but to topple the outhouse. Number two, our lack of goodness affects others. There is never any such thing as a sin that doesn't affect other people. Even if you do it to yourself, it's going to affect other people because everyone has friends, everyone has family members, everyone has someone that they know at work that it's going to affect them in a big or a little way. And so our privation of good Our sinful nature, when we act upon it and fall into its temptation, affects others. So, for example, in the story, it was the boy toppling the outhouse, and now none of his family or other people can use the outhouse. They don't have a bathroom anymore. It affects other people. Third, there's always consequences to the choices. I wonder if the boy ever thought that maybe he's going to get found out. I wonder if he ever thought that if he gets found out, he's going to get a spanking. He's going to be disciplined. But there's always a consequence to the choice. There's no one that's going to think, you know what? What that little boy did was great. And 
he shouldn't be punished or he shouldn't be disciplined for what he did. Everyone knows that that boy should be disciplined in some way or some form because now they don't have a bathroom for the family. Or he, maybe the discipline should be, instead of spanking, him rebuilding the house. But there has to be some type of consequence or else that boy is never going to learn. Now we see all of these things at work and where we are currently in the story with the story of David. That even at the height of David's rule, we see these threes come into play. And possibly it's because he was at the height of his rule, he thought himself all that and he forgot who got him to the height of his rule. And he started playing with the temptations that he was facing. We discover that David had it all because God blessed his obedience to his covenant. Long before David, long before Moses, all the way back until Abraham, God started a covenant with Israel, starting from Abraham, saying that if you obey me and you will follow me, I will bless you, I will, I will grant you great territory, I will grant you offspring as, as numberless as the sands of the shore, as the stars of the sky, and I will have a personal, favorable relationship to you. And so if you follow me, all of these things will happen. And we saw Abraham did that, and we saw his family get blessed We saw all the way down through Moses, they got blessed, all the way down to to David now, he gets blessed because of that. And because of that, everything he does succeeds. He defeats enemies time and time again, shows kindness to Mephibosheth, expands his kingdom's geographical borders beyond what even Saul could have imagined. His kingdom Israel is now secure, and David is at rest in his palace. And then we learn in 2 Samuel 11 that David lets down his guard and makes a tragic choice that causes a pivotal downward shift in David's life, family, and also kingdom. Now, the first thing that he does is, if we can go to the next slide, David commits grievous sins and tries to cover them up, as we've seen in the summary video. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And she gets pregnant. And when we look at 2 Samuel 11, we see in the beginning that it actually says the time when kings go off to war in the spring. Spring is amenable to war because it's not too cold. It's not too hot. You get the occasional rain, which is good because it freshens everyone up who needs to go to war. It gives them water. And usually the geography and the terrain and the environment is is friendly to making war. And so... At the time when kings go to war, it says David is in his palace looking over his city. And that was the first mistake. Because if you think about all of the leaders in the past before David, all the way, even going back to Moses, thinking about all the judges, did they stay behind and let everyone else go to the war? Or were they at the front? Most of the time, when you look at the judges... When you look at the, the different people back in those days, they actually led the pack. They didn't stay behind and rest while other people died in their place. And so here we see David going against what traditionally was known as what a leader should do. He began to be someone who was like some of the worldly kings, letting other people die in his place while he sat and just basked in his own glory in his palace. When he should have been off at war, he was back at home 
And then he saw Bathsheba bathing, and he fell into temptation, and he fell into sin. So David commits adultery with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and she gets pregnant. Now, even within that statement is loads and loads of sinful meaning. Because who was Uriah? A lot of times when we think about Uriah, we think, oh, he's just one of David's soldiers. He wasn't just one of David's soldiers. Remember, there was a, around a 7- to 12-year period where David was supposed to be king because God ordained him as king, but Saul wouldn't give up his kingship. And because Saul felt threatened that David was now the anointed king and he wanted to stay in power, he sent troops and he himself went after David and tried to kill him. And there were 37 elite soldiers who David could trust in to protect him during that time as they were evading and running around avoiding King Saul. And do you know who was the 37th one? In the Bible, it lists him as Uriah the Hittite. So Uriah was one of the band of brothers along with David, one of his most trusted brothers in arms, and this was the person who he was cheating against and plotting to kill in order to cover up his sin. So what David does here isn't just a simple case of sexual temptation and adultery. It's much more complex than that. This is like Korean drama to the max, right? He not only sins this way, but he is sinning against a brother at arms, a dear friend, someone who risked his life for him, someone who saved him through thick and thin for the seven to 12 years that he was running from Saul. It was uh, a tragedy. So the first cover-up, David tries to get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba so everyone will think the baby is Uriah's. But Uriah, a man of integrity, refuses such comforts out of respect for his fellow soldiers currently in the field of battle. And you can find this in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 10 to 11. How can I enjoy the comforts of my own personal home and my own wife when all my other brothers at arms are out there in the field of battle against the Ammonites? That's not right, and that's not fair to them. So I'm going to sleep outside of my home. I'm not going to go and sleep with my wife. And so David tries to get him to sleep with David tries to get him drunk so that he'll go and sleep with his wife. That doesn't happen. Uriah is too good for that. He's too, too moral. He has too much integrity. And we see here the juxtaposition with how far David has gone in terms of sliding into a sort of an amoral disposition versus Uriah, a Hittite who's not even born a Jew, but who was converted because he was a Hittite, and how much more righteous this non-Jewish person was compared to a man that was supposed to be a man after God's own heart. And so then here comes cover-up number two. David then secretly arranges to have Uriah killed in battle. And then David marries Bathsheba. And we see this in 2 Samuel eleven fifteen. David thinks everything is back to normal. His sins are now all covered up, and no one knows. Now, in an atheistic and naturalistic world, Nothing's wrong, right? No one knows. Life goes on, and we don't have to worry about any consequences. Unfortunately, we don't live in an atheistic and naturalistic world, because who knows? 
course, David knows. And of course, God knows. And so David's sins are exposed by God through Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David is supposed to execute the covenant of God. He's sort of like the presidency. right? He's the executive branch. But there's also a judicial branch at play here, which is what the prophets are all about. If David is supposed to execute the covenant of God, the prophets are God's ordained people to help the, the executive branch to know what those covenants are in order to be executed. And so, because David committed this grave sin against God, God then speaks to Nathan, the prophet to David, King David, and reminds him in a very confrontational way of how he went against the covenant. God knows what David did. He speaks to Nathan. Nathan, a prophet to the king, hears from God and speaks what God tells him. And so in a private confrontation, Nathan exposes David's horrible scandals. He uses an ingenious parable that causes David to accuse himself without even knowing it. And here's David's response. And compared to the king before, it is like night and day. It's amazing. It's good. David, unlike his predecessor Saul, does not make excuses, but fully confesses his sin. If you remember the previous times when we covered Saul, Saul's like, well, you know, the reason why I didn't do it was because um, I didn't want to kill all of the best of the cattle, all of the best of the animals of the enemy. You know, we can use them for our needs, and we can even use them for sacrifice. We don't have to kill them. And look, here's, here's the king of the Amalekites. You know, I've saved him just for you. We don't need to kill, kill him, even though God specifically said that they're all to be killed. And then only when, when he is confronted with the fact that he might lose his kingship, then he goes, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Please tell your God that I made a mistake. Unlike Saul, David doesn't do any of that. He just confesses his sin and goes to God with a humble heart. And this is why God, this is why, why David has a, a, is a man after God's own heart. Psalm 51, 1 to 12, shows the kind of repentance that he had. And in Psalm 51, which David wrote, he writes this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justify when you judge. See, David could have said, well, I didn't really sin against you, God. I sinned against Bathsheba. And I sinned against Uriah, and, and, and I destroyed a family. I'm so sorry. But I didn't sin against you. No, he said, no, I, when I did this, I sinned against you, God. I'm so sorry. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So those of you that love worship music, you remember that old song, 
Create in me a clean heart, oh God. That comes straight from Psalm 51, verses 10 to 12. And then we see, third, what happens to David. He is forgiven, and God is gracious with him and continues to bless him, but he needs to live now with the consequences of his sin, not only in his personal life, but in the kingdom of Israel that God had helped David to establish. We see that in 2 Samuel 12 as well. And we see first the consequences to his personal life. Now, I remember back in the day when Bill Clinton was president, and he had got involved with Monica Lewinsky, right? And he was, there was calls for him to be impeached. And his answer, one of his answers, was a biblical one. And unfortunately, he erred in his biblical answer. He said, well, David did worse. He committed adultery, and he even killed the guy in order to cover it up. And the response from Christians was, well, um, it probably would have been better for you that you were impeached because it was worse for David. If, this actually, if you actually had the punishment of David, it would have been worse for you because David, although he was able to still be king, had these personal consequences. The baby that he had through Bathsheba dies because God specifically took him away. It wasn't like he died because of some kind of natural cause. God specifically killed the baby as punishment for the sin that David committed. So, wow, that's, that's pretty harsh. But, of course, later there's hope because Solomon is born and becomes the next king. Then we see now, before we didn't have this, now we have strife in David's royal family. David's daughter Tamar is raped by his half-brother Amnon. And guess what? Did David do anything about it? David did nothing. He was furious. He was sad. But the Bible doesn't say anything about if he punished or did not punish or discipline Amnon. So because of that, Tamar's full brother Absalom, also David's son, kills Amnon and rebels against David by instigating a royal coup and instigating a civil war. And through all of this, David is very, very passive through the whole thing. He runs away and he flees and becomes a refugee in his own kingdom. And I think part of it is because he realizes maybe this is my punishment. I deserve all of these punishments because of my sin against uh, uh, Uriah and Bathsheba. And because of this, whatever happens to the royal family will affect the kingdom because everything is connected to the royal family. And we see this played out in the kingdom. David flees in exile when Absalom rebels and takes the throne. Absalom dies in a very embarrassing death. Okay, so guys don't have long hair because they might get caught in the 1,000 oak trees that we have in this city. Uh, Absalom dies against David's wishes. David gets a tongue lashing from Joab saying, how can you even care about Absalom who took your throne away? Now you're a laughing stock, even within your own friends. Then years later, a man named Sheba also rebels and tries to take the throne. So things don't go well after this sin against Bathsheba and, and Uriah. Even though God still sustains David, he needs to take the consequences of his sin. And within all this turmoil, David bears the consequence with dignity. And David's relationship with God of grace is restored. Now, some side notes that I want to bring up 
Because whenever we talk about David, usually there are two questions that come up. The first question is this. How could God call David a man after his own heart? Specifically in 1 Samuel 13 and 14. There's another verse in Acts. If he committed such sins against Bathsheba and Uriah. And I'm very surprised whenever I hear this because, I mean, the answer should be pretty obvious. Is that God did not call David a man that was perfect and sinless. Right? If God called David, oh, David is a man who is perfect and sinless after me, then we should be surprised and wonder if there's a contradiction here in what God had promised and called David. But God didn't call David that. God called David a man after his own heart, meaning that he had the attitude and inclination of one that wanted to desire God, to serve God, and do the right thing God's way. And for the most part, he did. But of course, because he was just a man after God's own heart, rather than a man after God's own heart, and also a man who is perfect and sinless, he also had the failings of any other righteous man like we do today. And we see in 1 Kings 15.5 the, the validity of what I had just said. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. So that was a big major blot in David's uh, kingship and David's personal life. Another question that we usually get is this. God took David and Bathsheba's first son's life? Well, did the baby go to heaven or hell? And we had covered this before, but I think it's remained to cover this again because um, of what a lot of mothers go through today. And the answer to that is most likely heaven, or what the Jews back then called heaven, Abraham's bosom, uh, which was the righteous part of what they called Sheol, which was like the grave or the underground. David even says in 2 Samuel 12, 22 to 23, he answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? So he was fasting in order to hopefully uh, uh, incur God's grace further in order for the child to live. Can I bring him back again? I will go to the child, but he will not return to me. So many biblical scholars see this as David being also himself an inspired prophet, knowing that he will see the child again in the afterlife, even though the child will not come back to him. Now, this gives us great hope. Because there are many of us who have struggled with that thought as well, whether because of a miscarriage or whether because um, the child died in the the womb for for one reason or another, or maybe because the child was born but died at a very, the baby was born and and died at a very, very young age. And we wonder, is this child in, in heaven or hell? And this gives us some hope that most likely he or she is in heaven. Now, here are some things that we should think about how this applies to our life. Like David, when we sin, and we all will, it doesn't matter how righteous you are, sooner or later you're going to sin even a little. We must admit our sins honestly to God, live with the consequences with dignity, and experience the forgiving, restoring grace of God. Let's avoid being like Saul, who kept trying to make excuses for his sins. You know why it is 
really silly to try to make excuses for your sin to God? Because do you really think God the Father, who is omniscient, who is omnipresent, doesn't know why you really did that? Or if you actually try to cover up your sin, do you really think that God doesn't know what you covered up? Like, oh, wow, you know, Steve covered the sin, and if I'm God, wow, Steve, you covered your sin. Can you admit to me what you did? Because I don't know. You covered it so well, right? You know, I don't, give me the password to your, your email account so I can see those emails. I need to see those emails, you know, and, and don't, don't delete those emails or whitewash them. I need to see them, okay? Like, God already knows. Like, it, so it is silly to even try to cover up or try to play games with God. Just admit it and know that God is there to forgive you and be gracious to you. Admit it and then repent and then ask for God's Holy Spirit to guide you to a better direction. Second of all, we should not be afraid to call out and confront sin like Nathan the prophet. You might be saving that person's life even, or if not that person's life, you'll be bettering that person's life by helping them not fall into that same sin again. A lot of times, because they're friends or because or maybe the other way around, we may not know them that well, we're afraid to call out their sin, even though it's obvious that they are sinning. But if you truly love that person, like God did with David, like Nathan did with David, you will call that sin out, and you will confront in a loving way that person so that he or she might have a chance to think twice again and repent uh, before doing that again. Third, let's be people of integrity like Uriah the Hittite, the noble warrior as he was portrayed in 2 Samuel. And fourth, let's worship the God of grace who brings repentant sinners and outsiders into his family. If you think about it, Jesus was descended by people who were sinners. Jesus was descended by people who, some who weren't even Jewish. He weren't even Hebrew. You had Bathsheba, who was an adulteress. You had Rahab, who was a prostitute. And not only that, she was a Canaanite. You have Ruth, who was a Moabite, or a Moabitess. All in the lineage that led to Jesus. So we see that Jesus is a Savior and Lord for all types of people, not just for the righteous, not for the Jew, but also for the unrighteous and also for the Gentile, which many of us are. Let's pray.